Hey, y'all. Um, I will be doing our reading for the day. So our reading today comes from Ruth 1, 14 through 18. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus, and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Good morning, y'all. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church with Pastor Cameron, uh, who is also my partner and my love. And uh, we are here um, at Zao still engaged in the day-to-day work of protest and resistance, deeply involved in the local uh, work of Black Lives Matter. And if you want to get involved, um, you can sign up for a shift to be present in this space Uh, It's actually quite limited in human contact, and we are masked up and regularly sanitizing. Um, And we've been talking about that. Last week, we ditched the normal sermon format and the series that we had been in so that we could talk specifically about the protests and about what was going on, about our commitment to it, and what that meant to us spiritually and theologically. But even as we're in the midst of all of this work, all of this critically important um, anti-racist work, we see the ways that the movement is playing out on the ground. Do you, where do you need it to go? We are so many tech, tech issues today. Is this better? I need to come here. Hi, guys. <laughs> so um, as we are engaged in this day-in, day-out work of protest. We're seeing lots of different things play out on the ground about what it means to to do intersectional work, what it means to be truly anti-racist, what it means truly to offer um, a a world to one another where uh, black liberation is central and celebrated. And we're seeing some of the things play out here in Milwaukee that are surely playing out elsewhere in the country. We're seeing that in the beautiful, profound work of the Black Lives Matter movement and the effort for black liberation, misogyny and misogynoir, queer and transphobia are deeply impacting the work that's being done. It's limiting the project for black liberation as women get decentralized, as queer and trans folks um, are, are left out, And worse, when women, queer, and trans people are not only left out, but targeted uh, for hate in the process, or uh, not offered the protection that we are fighting for all black people to have. This conversation involves who exactly is included in Black Lives Mattering, 
And as queer and trans voices are erased, as women are sidelined, we must remember that the Black Lives Matter movement was begun by queer black women. It's a reminder that no issue exists in isolation from others, that each person in our world has overlapping identities of privilege and oppression. We have to continue to storytell and resource and support one another across these different intersections of identity. I received in the mail yesterday a book that uh, I know some of you have been reading, even recommending to me, called Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown. And I would love for folks to be reading this book with me and with one another as we encounter what it means to do the work of activism, the work of liberation, the work of the kingdom with an orientation towards pleasure and joy, connection and intimacy. This is what we mean when we say, Zao, to be among the living, that life is for something. It is for joy, for connection, for the glory of God, which is pleasurable. Adrienne Marie Brown, in her own words, is a black mixed woman who is pansexual and queer. Her overlapping complex identity gives her a unique viewpoint from which to gather resources that invite us into pleasure and profound liberative joy. For black lives to matter, all black lives must matter. And for any life to matter, the fullness of life has to matter, including sexuality, and romance and intimacy. This is why we are returning uh, today to our relationship series, our love series called It's Complicated. We are taking a queer, feminist, anti-racist look at relationships in the Bible and those relationships in the Bible that can teach us something about the beauty of love, the spirituality of love and romance, and what it means to be faithful not only to God but to one another in intimate partnership in joy and pleasure. So what does the Bible have to offer on that front? Actually, quite a lot. We do have to look harder for it, especially when we're looking for queerness, for women, for an anti-racist understanding. Queerness in particular is hidden and obscured by the text, but it's also obscured by heteronormative readings. Biblical scholar Jeremy Shipper writes, Heterosexuality is often presumed without explicit justification unless another contemporarily recognized expression of sexual desire is clearly identified in the text, projecting heteronormativity back into ancient Israelite relationships. Now, if that technical jar jargon felt overwhelming, let me summarize. Straight people think everybody's straight. And because straight people think everybody's straight and they assume that, and I don't want to lump all straight, hashtag not all straight people, uh, because we have a reading and because we've all internalized heteronormativity, even queer folks, there is this implicit assumption when we're reading a story that everybody involved in it is straight, that that's the default setting, the default sexuality, unless somebody explicitly comes out or we have clear evidence of, of something else. The presumption is of straightness. This might be wrong on a number of levels. First of all, we know that not everyone is straight, so why would everyone in our stories be straight? But second of all, even contextually, in ancient Israelite relationships, as Shipper points out, this might be wrong. 
Israel was a largely sex-segregated society. It meant that there were two recognized, identified um, sexes and genders in dominant culture, not universally, but in the dominant culture. There were men and women. And they had realms. They had separate spaces. Men were over here, women were over here. And in sex-segregated society, throughout history, there's often queer relationships. Even in our own culture, we have a phrase called gay for the stay. And whether you're talking about um, people who are incarcerated or people who are in like sex and gender segregated schools, there is a cultural recognition that in segregated spaces, people continue to find love and intimacy and sexual pleasure with one another. Even if that doesn't um, persist throughout the rest of their cultural identity or their own personal narrative. So we understand that highly likely in this segregated society, people were finding joy and sex and romance with one another in the spaces that they occupied, which were um, homo spaces. Ted Horner uh, acknowledges women spent most, almost all of their time together and very, very little of it with men. He goes on and says, females of the Old Testament must have been doing something at home where they spent almost all of their time other than working from dawn till dusk and bearing children for men who spent most of their time sitting at the town gate. And so we are invited into an imagination of the lives of women in the Hebrew scriptures and what it was that they got up to during those long days that they spent together and away from men. The romance and love and connection that they would have found in their closest and most constant relationships. So what if we lifted the presumption of heterosexuality? We know that marriage and even sex in uh, the Bible was often transactional, related to property, lineage, that sort of thing. So what if we opened our reading of the Bible to the presumption that romance was not merely, not merely or purely heterosexual. What about romance for the sake of pleasure and intimacy? What about sex as a form of connection, as we see in the Song of Songs, between a young, unmarried, dark-skinned woman and her lover? Today, we're going into one of my favorite stories of the Bible, Ruth and Naomi, and also consequentially, Boaz. Ruth, is one, is a, Ruth gets her own book of the Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible that we use, and uh, Ruth gets one of them all to herself, named after her. The book of Ruth is one of only three in the Bible to pass the Bechdel test. The Bechdel test, uh, as you may or may not know, is uh, kind of a rubric for um, equality, gender equality in writing, in fiction stories. Uh, usually, where the it's a very simple guideline. Are, are there multiple women in the story who have names and speak to each other about something other than a man? Not a lot of stories, much less books, uh, in, in the Bible pass that test. Uh, Ruth is the only one in the Hebrew Scriptures that does. And it's partly because this book centers around the experiences, voices, and relationships of women in a unique and powerful way. 
This is a story about women told by women. And I believe it's a story about queer women and maybe a queer man and the ways that queer family and relationships form despite expectations and boundaries of a society not set up for us. This is a way that queer folks find one another and love one another in the midst of all of that. So let me tell you the story of Ruth, of Ruth and Naomi and their love, of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz and their family. Once upon a time, as we sometimes practice saying now uh, when we read these stories of our scriptures. Once upon a time, there was a man named Elimelech. That's a guess on pronunciation there. Uh, and Naomi. And they were married. There were Israelites from Bethlehem. You may remember Bethlehem as an important city um, where Jesus was born in the lineage of King David, who was the other, like, really important dude from Bethlehem. There was a famine that fell over the land. And so this couple moved. They moved out of Bethlehem, moved out of Israel entirely, actually moved all the way to Moab. Moab was a place where there were stories that the Moabites and the Israelites were connected to each other through common lineage way back. But there was a lot of animosity Moabites often in scriptures were described in derogatory, hostile, or insulting terms. But this couple of Israelites, they moved there. They were outsiders in that space and made home in Moab. They had two sons, and uh, after some time, Elimelech died, leaving Naomi to raise these two sons. The sons married. They grew up and married. They married two women named Ruth and Orpah. Fun fact, Oprah's birth name is Orpah, but people had such a hard time pronouncing it and kept defaulting to Oprah that she just went with it, and that is where Oprah got her name. So 10 years later, the sons die. So now you have Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. In the Moabite land, Naomi is an outsider, an Israelite. All three of them are widows. In the Queer Bible Commentary, which I'll read to you from in a little bit, Mona West uh, summarizes uh, the status of women in, a, in very short order in a way that I found really helpful. She says, women had two uses in, in culture at that time, not just Israelite culture, but in um, the ancient Near East. One uh, a woman could be a virgin living in her father's household. That was useful because it presented opportunities for negotiating lineage and property and, and that sort of thing. Or two, being the bearer of children living in a husband's household. Those were the two uses for women. Those were the two places in society for women. And when you had spent one and the other had, had not gone well, as it had for all three of these women, they were societally useless. So you had these three widows, three women who were deemed useless, one of whom was an outsider, an immigrant. What were they to do? What happens when the men are gone? Well, in this case, when the men are gone, we get a story of the flourishing of women. 
So Naomi is not only a widow, but a foreigner and an outsider, an immigrant. So she has no standing and no way to survive in Moab. She hears that the famine has lifted in Israel. And so she wants to go home. She gathers Orpah and Ruth, her family for many years. And she urges them, go to the homes of your mothers. I have to leave. We must say goodbye. Orpah kisses her goodbye, a sign of affection and also agreement. Yes, we have to part ways. Blessings on your journey. But Ruth, the text says that Ruth clings to her. And we begin to get a glimpse into the nature of Ruth and Naomi's relationship. These two women who have spent years together while their husbands were elsewhere. These two women who were family to one another even though Naomi was a stranger in that land. While Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye, Ruth's clinging to her is complex and deep. The verb that's used there, she clung to her, is the same verse used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, and this is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. I don't necessarily want to read uh, a sexual act into that clinging, although it is absolutely possible that it's included. It's so much more than one single act. Clinging to someone, becoming one flesh with someone, leaving family and finding home with another. This is about partnership. This is about marriage. And it is followed, that, that uh, verb indicating intimacy, partnership, perhaps even sex, it is followed with a beautiful statement that is so treasured um, as poetry and as a profound commitment from one person to another that it is routinely read at heterosexual weddings. Ruth says, do not leave me. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do thus unto me and more if even death parts me from you. And during that speech that Ruth makes, she presumably is making a gesture. She says, may the Lord do thus to me. She's probably either chopping, making a chopping gesture, or a slitting of her throat. May the Lord do thus to me if I ever leave you or abandon you. Now, if any of you have ever been deeply ridiculously in love and said something way over the top, perhaps you can relate to Ruth being like, no, you will not go unless I go with you. I have my U-Haul right here, Naomi. I will go where you go. Your people will be my people. Even death cannot part us and may God strike me dead if I am lying. These are lesbians, y'all. I love it. This is beautiful love. This is over-the-top, gushing love that says even death won't part us. I will be buried where you are buried. You will not go without me because I love you and we belong together. They go together. This inter-ethnic queer couple, these women, they pack up, they fill their U-Haul, and they leave Moab 
together in love. Now in Moab, Naomi is an outsider, but in Israel, Ruth is the outsider. So this couple has intersecting oppressions, not only queer, but inter-ethnic. We talked a little bit uh, a few weeks ago about Rebecca and Isaac, this story of people finding one another from their own ethnic identity and the beauty of having your people who are from your people, who share your culture. But we also talked about how that became law in this culture and how awful it is when instead of having a celebration of a shared history and lineage, there's a mandate that you must never go outside your culture, that love beyond the boundaries of your ethnic identity is wrong and illegal. Perhaps some of you know that Friday was Loving Day. Loving Day is uh, every June 12th when we remember a Supreme Court case, the Lovings, uh, a black woman and a white man in love with one another who married one another before realizing that when they went home to Richmond, Virginia, they would be driven out or face jail time because their love and their marriage was still illegal. In 1967, it was still illegal across many parts of the U.S. for non-white people who were deemed outsiders to marry white people who were deemed insiders. And every loving day, I don't really know how to commemorate that victory, to celebrate it, to share what it means to me personally. There are couples all over my timeline who make posts on Facebook saying, can you believe that just a few decades ago, we would not have been allowed to legally marry in much of this country? I want to make those posts too, because it's important to remember how recently it was illegal to have interracial couples with white folks in them. But it was just a few years ago, not decades, that my queer marriage became legal for other reasons. So it is with Ruth and Naomi. They are facing many different odds. They are both inter-ethnic, which is wrong and illegal in their context, and queer. And so as they re-enter Israel, they are queer, they are inter-ethnic, they are widowed, and they are women. Surely this can't go well. But one of the reasons that I love this story is that when we are honoring the experiences of people who are marginalized and oppressed or people whose experiences center their oppressed identities, we often tell stories of oppression and suffering. But it is so important for us also to tell stories of joy and triumph, of celebration and beauty. Our queer stories should be stories of beauty. Our black stories should be stories of beauty. And while we need to bear witness to the pain and suffering of oppression, we also need to bear witness to the beauty and joy of queer identity, of black identity, of trans identity, of all of the things that we are fighting for to be in our fullness, whoever we are in our intersecting identities of oppression and privilege. So what follows here 
is a celebration of subversive strategies to create and sustain families of love across intersecting identities and challenges of oppression. So Ruth and Naomi enter Israel. They are together, they are in love, they are facing a lot of odds. They're poor, they don't have anything really. Uh, We'll find out later that Naomi has a plot of land, but they don't have a way to make money. And so they fall back on a really important law in Israel, uh, the law that allowed gleaning, it's called. Gleaning is the process by which after the major harvest has, has taken place or the major workers have, have cleared a field, they leave some of the crop so that poor folks and folks in need, including widows and foreigners, can move through the fields and gather what they need. And so Ruth finds a field to glean. It says that she's there and she immediately starts getting harassed by men. This is one of the places, the fields, actually where men and women intersect. This sort of gender neutral zone where everyone is a worker and everyone's just trying to get fed. The demands of the field required all hands on deck. And so there they were all together, the men and the women, the workers, the day laborers, and the very, very poor, all gathering the harvest, the abundance of the crop from God for their community. Ruth is gleaning in a field belonging to a prominent rich man named Boaz. And Boaz sees her, a Moabite, a foreigner, a young woman in his field, and he asks one of his his own people, who does she belong to? A very uh, annoying question, a very patriarchal question, but also a very understandable one in that context. Who does this woman, this foreigner, this young woman belong to who is gleaning in our fields? And right away, the answer is Naomi. The other worker explains she came with Naomi. She is of Naomi. Boaz decides to put Ruth under his protection to keep the men from bothering her. And we see immediately the way that Boaz is recognizing what's happening between Ruth and Naomi. He praises Ruth later, saying how beautiful it is that she is with Naomi and taking care of her and how she should be blessed for that. So Boaz sees what's happening, sees what Ruth and Naomi are up against. And he says, I offer you my protection. Yes, you may continue to glean in my fields. Please do. And also, I will protect you from the advances of these men who I see that you are not interested in. And so they work until the end of the harvest. This is a strategy for allowing Ruth and Naomi to continue living together, loving one another, being family to one another without men. But it only lasts until the end of harvest. When Naomi finds out that Ruth has been in Boaz's field, Naomi is excited, and she says, Oh, Boaz's kin. Now, in the context of the scriptures and many commentaries that have been written, the assumption is Boaz is kin, related, there's some sort of family obligation. But in the Midrashic tradition, where we 
impart the wisdom of our lives into the text and vice versa. I have to admit that what I heard when I read Boaz's kin is, oh, Boaz's family. And not family like when when I see my cousins who I uh, only encounter once every couple of years. Family like when Cameron and I go to Chipotle and the cashier talks to us a little longer than is normal and we walk out together and one of us says, family? And the other says, oh yeah, family. I think Boaz might be queer. I think Boaz might be recognizing them. Boaz, who is a prominent, wealthy, older man, who is a bachelor, who doesn't seem to have any wife indicated in the text. An older, single, wealthy man sees a young, queer, immigrant woman, offers her his protection. They, I believe, try to test this, Naomi and Ruth. The story goes on where Naomi says, Ruth, why don't you go in the middle of the night after Boaz has eaten, maybe had some wine, when he's asleep, why don't you go get, get perfumed, get all dolled up, then uncover his feet, which is uh, a biblical euphemism for genitals. Uncover his feet and lie at his feet and just like see how that goes. I'm not embellishing at this part, at this, this part at all. All of that is, is directly in the text. And again, traditional heteronormative commentaries would say, basically, Ruth is seducing Boaz um, in order to secure a marriage, and Ruth is, is sort of playing both, both sides of the field and all these things, bisexuality, all the beautiful stuff. Um, but what I read in here is kind of a testing. Is this person kin? Who is Boaz and what does Boaz want? So Ruth goes in the middle of the night. She, dressed up in her best, perfumed, um, makes herself available to Boaz, uncovers his feet, and lies there and waits for him to wake. The text says that when he wakes, he is very startled. And not just like, oh, who are you? But like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And it says he is startled because there was a woman A woman at his genitals is not what he was expecting. It does seem very, very invasive. Um, And so I think that we need to note that as well. But Ruth is making herself available to Boaz. And what does he do? They talk. A lot of commentaries will say, oh, this shows how pure and chaste Boaz and Ruth are, that they are not being untoward by having sex outside the confines of marriage. Maybe they're just not into each other. But they talk. This is where Boaz really offers Ruth praise about the way that she is loving and supporting Naomi. How beautiful he thinks it is. He he notes, you have not gone after young men, either poor or rich. She instead is going after this older bachelor who has protected her and who honors her love with Naomi. And so without any sex of any kind, he sends her home with extra food and a plan. How do we hold together this household? How do we honor the love between Ruth and Naomi? How can Boaz also be family to them? There are complications. As I mentioned, Naomi has a piece of land and other folks in the kinship circle have more right to it. 
So Boaz goes to the next of kin in her family, and he says, hey, Naomi has some land. Are you going to get in on that? Are you going to redeem that, claim that, buy that? And the next of kin says, oh, yeah, no, I'd love to do that. I uh, love getting me some more property. Would love to be entitled to that. Boaz says, oh, okay, well, just so you know, um, to do that, you would also have to take Ruth on as well and give her an heir, and it would be in uh, Naomi's lineage. So those kids would get that portion of the inheritance. And this next of kin, who never receives a name, says, oh, ooh, no, no thank you. I'm not interested in, you know, divvying up any of my property to other people's children um, or other lines or other names. So, like, I definitely don't want to do that. And Boaz is like, oh, okay, well, if you're not into that, I mean, like, I can do that. I can do that for you. And they're like, great, yes, please, thank you. Take this off my hands. And so Boaz manipulates these systems that are set up for other people to benefit these women. He now is the owner of this property, but he has pledged it to be passed on to Ruth and Naomi. They build a family together. And now Ruth and Naomi are living together under the protection of Boaz, their generous, older, bachelor, single friend. <laughs> and they make a life. Here's where I'd like to read to you from the Queer Bible Commentary. This section was written by Mona West. She says, All of these actions indicate Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz's decision to create their own family and define their own understanding of kinship and responsibility to one another within the context of the inheritance and kinship laws of ancient Israel. These actions are similar to the ways in which queer people of today create families. A bisexual man and two lesbians live together with their biological child. A gay man is a sperm donor for a lesbian couple and is part of parenting their child. Three gay men live together as lovers and family for 20 years. A lesbian mother and her lover live two doors down from her lesbian daughter and her lover. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz provide our community with an ancient example of the ways in which we have been creating our families. She praises them for navigating legal systems that were not made for them, finding ways to be family anyway, whether or not they are recognized, and having their love and their relationships define who they are more than the lineage and legality of the culture around them. Boaz and Ruth do become pregnant and Ruth gives birth to a son called Obed. The text is very clear, though, about who raises him. Naomi raises him with Ruth. Naomi and Ruth are mothers to him. The women who comment throughout the book of Ruth, the women of the town, call Naomi blessed. They say Ruth loved her. The only time the word love is mentioned in this book is there when the women are praising the love they see that Ruth has for Naomi, not for anyone else. And they say that Ruth is better to Naomi than seven sons, which from a legal standpoint is an absurd statement, but from a standpoint of love is obviously true. Ruth then, the outsider, the immigrant, the Moabite, becomes the great-grandmother to King David, who becomes 
an ancestor of Jesus. And in the lineages, in the genealogies of Jesus the Christ, there are a handful of women named. One of them, Tamar, we talked about a few weeks ago, and another, Ruth the Moabite, the queer outsider widow who found her place in the family of God by prioritizing love and commitment, intimacy, joy, over the expectations or limitations of the culture around her who didn't understand or support who she was. And she got her own book because this beautiful truth, this is something worth celebrating and holding up as holy, that queer inter-ethnic boundary-defying love is blessed by God and produces redemption, brings about the Jesus we long for. Queerness is beautiful. Inter-ethnic relationships are beautiful. Finding family is holy. Will you join me in prayer? Good and loving God, we praise you for recognizing the truth and power of our love, even as our culture doesn't. We pray that you would show that truth through us to the world around us, that we would defend the love, the family, the connections in our lives as boldly as we defend other forms of justice and joy. God, may we find joy that sustains us in the fight against oppression. And may your will be done through queer, inter-ethnic women, relationships, families, and boundary-defying experiments of love. In your name we pray. Amen.